0: Once upon a time, welcome to Australian
1: Book Lovers, your destination for imagination. A big warm welcome to everyone and a huge thank you for joining us for the Australian Book Lovers podcast. Our mission is to bring fabulous Australian and Indigenous literature that spans a whole range of genres to book lovers around the globe, as well as fantastic resources and information for passionate authors looking to write their next bestseller. I'm Veronica Strachan, aka V.E. Pattern, fantasy, memoir and picture book writer, reader and one of your co-founders and hosts for the episode today, episode number 53, coming to you from Wurundjeri country.
0: And
2: I am Darren Kazenko, dystopian science fiction and horror author, avid reader, book lover, of course, and also one of your co-founders and hosts today for the Australian Book Lovers podcast, coming to you from a corner country. And yes, episode number 53. Number 53. Now,
1: do you have any magic uh, interpretation of number
2: well, 53 for us? <laughs> Look, a little bit of research. Fifty-three has a well has quite an interesting meaning. It, apparently, it reveals that the past should not worry or burden you, and it, fifty-three is a symbol or a sign that it is time to leave the past in the past and focus on your future because the future holds a lot for you if you only believe and trust. And it's also important. So the 53 goes, that forgive all the people who have wronged you and forge ahead with the peace of mind that you so deserve. Uh, Quite a a fitting meaning for number 53. I was going to say, that sounds
1: very appropriate considering who we're talking about today and what he wrote about.
2: Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, the changes that I've gone through behind the scenes, I I like the idea of just... uh, yeah, leave the past in the past. or Well, I don't leave the past in the past, but I'll, I'll uh, shift my focus to the future. Because I think the past is uh, yes. always, you, you have to carry it with you because it has so many lessons and treasures. Yeah, yeah Sorry,
1: pack but, it up and bring it to the future. Nice.
2: But I uh, had a bit of a look to see how important, all, all these important things that might have happened in Australia in 1953. Okay. Uh, being that I, I'm really enjoying doing that and want to make it a regular thing. So did you know on the 20th and March in 1953, the Television Act is passed by Parliament, setting regulations for the broadcast of Television Australia, although television transmission did not commence until 1956.
1: So I was going to say, it sounds a bit earlier than yes, I yeah Yes, that's strange. Yeah. I
2: always, I can't believe it was, was that late. I, I thought when, I maybe I've got to have a look and see when TV started, I suppose. <laughs>
1: now, I think it could have been 56, because isn't there always the memory of that guy saying... And welcome to television.
2: Oh yeah, but I just thought the invention of TV was for what? I'm hopeless when it comes to that stuff. But. uh. Ah. But there you go. They were So a rare a rare uh, representation of a parliament actually sitting down and thinking about the future So and getting things ready for something that happened three years later. <laughs> now they just deal with stuff after it's happened and try and shift blame. But anyway, and on the 4th of December, speaking of ridiculous acts of uh, government sometimes, <laughs> um, no, no, sorry, not on the 4th of December, but in 1953, the Korea War did end and Australia obviously had soldiers in that war. So, That was a good, good thing to happen on the 4th of December. Now, this is a little uh, thing, little discovery that possibly changed the face of Australia or at least part of it. So oil is discovered in in the Exmouth Gulf off the coast of Western Australia. Mm. So that uh, obviously had, uh, well, economic repercussions that we probably still feel today. And uh, now in 1953, now in 1941, Prime Minister, the RT Honourable Robert Menzies issued a press statement recommending the flying of the blue and sign as a national emblem. However, the Flags Act, which came in in 1953, subsequently proclaimed the Australian blue and sign as the Australian national flag and the Australian red and sign as the flag for merchant ships registered in Australia. There was also an amendment to the Flags Act of 1953 that was actually passed in 1998 to ensure Mm. that the Australian national flag can only be changed with the agreement of the Australian people. So there we go. 1953 cemented a little bit more of the flag um, and its use. So interesting little bit of history there. Now is
1: that, did you say the Ensign flag? Is that the flag, the Australian national flag or is that the naval flag?
2: That's a good question because I just assumed. (laughs) as. So it says proclaim the Australian blue and sign so as the Australian national flag. No. Uh, there you go. Yeah. So with the magic of podcasting. So yes, with the magic of uh, <laughs> podcast and editing, yep. uh, this is as fast as I can learn. You see, I'm a very good learner. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as I've discovered, it, ensign is the national flag flown on a vessel to indicate nationality. So there, there we are. go. Yeah. So a little yeah. bit of uh, ocean flag information. Ocean flag, and of course regards. the
1: other wonderful thing that's have, well. Wonderful in in many people's uh, views is the the Australian Aboriginal flag, which was designed by Harold Thomas, and we did spend some time trying to uh, get permission to use it because we didn't want to use it yes. unless uh, it was appropriate. And we did get fantastic letter back from the Torres Strait Islander Commission to use their flag on the website, but the Aboriginal flag now. Uh, has the ownership is now been vested in the Commonwealth by Harold Thomas so that it's freely available for public use and can be used, you know, without um, fear of permission and uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. that, that I, only I happened like that. earlier this year, yeah, uh, just in February this year. So, yeah, and if anybody from overseas doesn't know the Aboriginal flag, it is... Uh, the top half is black, the bottom half is red, and it has a bright yellow circle in the middle. Yeah, so the black symbolises the Aboriginal people, uh, the red symbolises the the land, and the yellow is the, the sun.
2: Yeah, well, hopefully, yeah. hopefully now that the flag will just appear more and more and, and yeah. become just a, an integral part yeah. of you know, of our identity, really.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I heard somebody chatting the other day. I can't remember what I was watching, some interview or other, and they mentioned, oh, so I heard from Rick Morton Uh, who is the editor of uh, Growing Up in Country Australia, a book that a friend of mine, Fiona White, has written a story about. There was a launch at the Woodend Library and I went up and had a a listen to that and he was talking about his connection to country. uh, Despite him being a a white uh, Australian, he grew up in uh, Boona in country Queensland. And he said he said something like this on uh, a stage and... Um, uh, Marisa Lukachenko who's an Aboriginal author I read a couple of her stories she said just own that we want to share um, that uh, I guess that connection to country whether you are you know white or whatever colour then yes Aboriginal people have the centuries and centuries of connection but you know embrace your own connection so yeah there Mm. you go
0: that's yeah
2: true. and I, I think at the end of the day, I like the idea of you know the, the earth beneath our feet it's it's a matter of a relationship that we build. And share as opposed to ownership. I know that's. Uh, yeah. I know that's a bit. Uh, what do they call I- idealistic?
1: But at the end no, of the day, I think you are absolutely in my bare, right. Bare yeah. feet,
2: it touched the same beach sand, and yeah, uh, yeah I like to have a nice relationship with uh, a yeah. little planet called Earth. So. Yeah,
1: we spent two years in, or just a bit over two years in Western Australia, and look, I loved it over there. The weather was great, and all those kind of things. But it just never quite felt like home, and coming back to Victoria to where I grew up it was like ah, oh, yeah home and you know the trees were the right shape and the earth was the right color and you know it was rockier and our mountains were right and we had more uh, I guess the temperate rainforest you know we had um, tree ferns and those kind of things and the bracken was different so all of those were just that that connection and that uh, yeah the feeling of being home.
2: Tap, tap, tap. There's no
1: place like home. <laughs> That's exactly right. So and there you go. So we've got a bit sidetracked yes, with your um, – have you finished what happened in – I've got a 19-
2: couple, couple of little thing, more things. Okay, bring it uh, so, to, in, so speaking of home, our home that we call Australia, in 1953 the population was 8,782,173. Mm-hmm. To put that in perspective, the same year – Just in New York alone, the population was 15.5 million. Mm. We are a tiny country as far as when it comes to uh, the amount of people. And that still is today. I mean, the, the population of Australia will fit... Uh, easily into just one city in a lot of the countries. But, uh, yeah, so there we go. We are a young country. um, But, you know, and here's a really cool part, or a bit of trivia. In 1953, David Warren of the Aeronautical Research Laboratories of Melbourne Mm. invented a genius device now installed in every international plane, which is, of course, the black box Mm. flight data recorder. What an invention. What Mm. a, uh, you know, uh, just something that is still, yeah. Something that's so important today, yeah, and I if believe it's not black. Whoa, well, yeah, but it's a black day if you need to open it. I suppose <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't. know why. They I've got call a feeling. A black yeah, box. Why?
1: Why do they call it a black box when i heard that in fact it's orange or something like that?
2: Hmm. I have no idea. Maybe that's something we can look into. And yes, uh, another yeah, day. Yeah, another day. But uh, to finish it off with uh, some uh, music. So in 1953, a couple of top hits, and there was lots to choose from. But I thought these are quite thing. We, we uh, we've got coming up soon a talk with Kate Foster, so this will make sense when we do chat with her, which is a fantastic chat. But anyway, mm-hmm. How Much Is That Doggy in the Window by Patty Page was the number one hit in 1953 <laughs> in Australia. And because we are Australian book lovers, another number one hit in 1953 by Frankie Lennon and Jimmy Boyd was Tell Me a Story.
1: Ah, there you go.
2: So there you go, a little bit of uh, 53, episode 53. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy for everyone to be joining us. And that was a little snapshot of Australia in 1953.
1: Yes, and so we're getting closer. What are we going to do when we get to 2020? Oh, yeah, see, when we get to 2000.
2: Are we are up to? Episode 53. Hmm. Well, yeah, so we've got, we got another 47 episodes to go. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll start going to the 1800s. Yes,
1: okay. So, yes, <laughs> which will be very interesting. We're years. going
2: back in time. Yeah, very yeah. good. And then maybe we can start uh, discussing what we're, you know, or we can go the other way and, uh, you know, being a bit of a sci-fi horror nut, we can talk about what we think the future of Australia is going to look like each year. So, but that'd be more of a creativity thing. But anyway, yes. So, yeah, episode 53. Uh, how about we jump into a little bit of news?
1: Okay, let's go. <laughs> I have some news for authors from the Australian Society of Authors, and I think it's worth us considering. So this is one for all your authors out there. Take the National Author Survey. So it, it, you know the Australian Society of Authors says if you're a published author, we strongly encourage you to complete the National Author Survey. And it was launched on the 27th of April. Uh, 2022 by Macquarie University, the Australian Council for the Arts and the Copyright Agency. So the survey investigates the current experiences of Australian authors in the book industry and follows on from an earlier survey conducted in 2015, which, among other findings, reported that Australian authors earn on average 12900 per annum from their creative practice, which is pretty sad.
2: I like to imagine that uh, a lot of authors that you know hit hit markets and li- you know libraries and book you know as in hit the road with their books yeah. I like the idea that they're just keeping like oh, suitcases okay, full that of cash Yeah a bit of Barry. cash
1: under the counter still <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah I only made 10 yeah, grand yeah,
1: <laughs> well, how, why are you enough. driving
2: that mercedes well,
1: <laughs> And okay <laughs> it is an average and there are you know there's a bunch of writers yeah, who obviously do a bit more and a bunch who do a bit less uh, but yeah it's not a not a great thing but anyway uh, more key findings on author income oh sorry their key findings on author income have been instrumental informing and strengthening the advocacy reports of the asa and book creators over the years so um, the asa enthusiastically supports the effort to update this data and urges all members to participate so um, you can go on to the asa website which is a s a u t h o r s as authors, in fact, uh, .org, Uh, go to the news or you'll see uh, on their banners and things to take the National Author Survey. And it takes about 20 to 25 minutes and there are three prizes of $1,000 each on offer to respondents. So you never know. You could be, uh, you know in the, the running for one of those prizes of $1,000. And if you're only earning $12,000 a year, if you're an average earning author or less, this could be a good thing.
2: Mm, definitely. That's and it is cool. important to get that data. I mean, yeah, yeah. sure, winning 1000 bucks would be amazing, but that data's important. They do such a good job. and yeah helps us uh, like you said it it helps strengthen the industry moving forward
1: yeah and advocacy and lobbying so if we can say that you know this is how many authors are out there this is what they're reading these are the things that are important to them yeah it really helps people in the lobbying sphere and hey who knows we might have a new government in another month or so let's not talk about it let's move (laughs) on to another Australian thing, which is my uh, little foray into meanings and origins of Australian Ah, words and idioms. Yes, so this is from the the Australian National University School of Literature, Languages and Linguistics. So that's a nice alliteration for those of us who like those things. So I'm up to the letter U, and I thought it was very appropriate that we have Yui. So if Hmm. I'd said we oh, yeah,
2: of course, chucking a, a yui. <laughs> yeah. Of course, when you with it without context, it's yes. a weird word. It's not yui, it's chucking a yui. Up <laughs> there. Chuck a yui. That's
1: yeah. it. exactly so. It's a u turn for anybody who's not yeah. sure.
2: Go down uh, there, chuck a yui, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, formed by abbreviating u turn, and then you add a y on the end, which is a common Australian way, of course, of ending you know, or altering words, Mm -hmm. and often found in the phrases to chuck a yui or do a yui. So there you go, to carry out a U-turn. Now, the earliest evidence of the term is found in 1973. So there you go. Uh, It's not that long ago. No, no. Interesting. All right, I've got another U word for you. And again, it's a fairly common one, a ute.
2: Well, yes. I don't know, is that an Australian?
1: Well... Yeah. I suppose
2: the Americans always call it a utility,
1: do they? A utility or a a, truck. Truck, yeah. 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 Mm. Anyway, so, of course, a ute is the abbreviation of utility, which is a small truck with two-door cab that looks like a sedan and a tray with permanent sides that's part of the body. The word ute is first recorded in 1943. Oh, wow. Familiar sight on Australian roads, both rural and urban. And, of course, many towns have an annual gathering of youths for competitive display, sometimes called a Ute Muster, with prizes awarded in categories such as the best street ute and the best feral ute. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: funny you say that. Uh, we've got uh, here Mount Compass, a beautiful part of the fluro. Yeah. They have a um, the Mount Com- Compass Cup, which is a cow race. Right. And uh, as part of the Days Festival is a... Uh, uh, like a Ute uh, procession, so all, all everybody gets their hotted up Utes and or whatever that you know, so you got like an hour of Utes just cruising around as well. So <laughs> yeah, very Australian. Oh, uh, the cow go. race, yeah, that's an interesting one, but we'll, we'll touch on that another day.
1: There you go. All right, I think I'll leave you with the yui and the
2: Ute. I am a little bit disappointed to be honest, Veronica. Why? Because well, it's whether it's Australian. I always thought it was. What about the word
1: Ugh? Uh well. Ugg boot is there. That was my third one. So. <laughs> oh, I thought you'd finished. <laughs> well, I have, but it is it is there on the page. I wasn't going to tell you everything else. Oh, you know, I'd being... love to know about Ugg boot because
2: right. ne- we're going backwards so... in the alphabet, obviously, so uh, <laughs> next episode Ugg will be gone and we'll never get to visit him again.
1: All right, so a flat sole boot made from sheepskin with the wool on the inside. So the term is of unknown origin but perhaps mm. originally an alteration of ugly boot um, yeah, so they're Australia's favourite footwear, of course, for comfort or cold weather. The early evidence for the term from the late 1960s suggests they first became popular with surfers. The name Ugg Boots, UGH Boots, was registered as a proprietary name for a type of footwear in 1971 by the Shane Clothing Company, but in 2006, UGG Boots, UWG, and its variants was removed from the Australian Register of Trademark. It's now a generic term for this type of boot in Australia. And for discussion of this, you can go to Footwear in Australia. Uh, but yes, you can. Well,
2: and then recently, uh, an Australian company was uh, not allowed to use the term one. That's exactly talking, right, right, because, because the, the American the, style. There's it. an
1: American style, have tried to snaffle that as mm, well. But yes, yeah, the Uggs are still about. Well, Uggs and the Mockies, but I haven't got to M yet, so you have to wait till I get Yeah,
2: yeah. well, the Uggs <laughs> will forever be a, a beautiful, beautiful, and not ugly, they're a beautiful footwear, fashionable, comfortable, warm, yeah. yeah. Well,
1: I'm going to admit that I have never owned a pair of Uggs.
2: <gasps> what? How about that? Oh no! So every day you've never got to one hundred percent happiness. No,
1: only ninety nine. I've just been a miserable shadow
2: of what it could be. This is what you need to do after the recording.
1: Oh, dash out and get a pair of ugly, yeah.
2: Yes, yes. It's yeah. it's like happiness for your feet, <laughs> especially because you know, uh, unless it's really cold. Well, of course, when, when you're going to put Ugg boots on. But otherwise, I, I don't know. I'm just a fan of thongs. I just I don't like wearing shoes unless you yeah. have to. So to go from, you know, cool breeze in my thongs to suddenly not, not warm and, like, super cloud comfy, yeah. yeah, it's quite a transition. I recommend it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. All right. So that is my news. A little bit of, um, yeah, meanings and origins and a little Wonderful. bit of please do the National Author Survey. Excellent. What have you got for our listeners today?
2: Certainly, I would just like to let our listeners know some of the uh, fantastic new uh, listings on the Australian Book Lovers website. Yep. Uh, so the first one is it's called The Raken's Familiar, and that's by <gasps> awesome author Nikki Lee. I went to and the launch.
1: I went to the launch. It was really ta-da. good.
2: <laughs> well, The Raken's Familiar can be found in our, under our fantasy genre, and uh, so it reads as follows: An orphan bent on revenge. A monster searching for freedom. A forbidden pact that binds their fates together. Lise has heard her father's screams. Smelled the iron tang of his blood. She's witnessed his execution. And plotted her revenge. Then a violent encounter traps Lise in a blood pact with a Rakan from the other world and imbues her with the monster's forbidden magic. A magic that will erode her sanity. To break the pact, she and the Rakan must journey to the heart of the Empire all that stands in their way are mountains and the empire's soldiers and each other but horror awaits them on the road horror is even raken's fear the most terrifying monster isn't the one less travels with it's the one that's awoken inside her so that is the raken's familiar by nikki lee under our fantasy genre
1: Woohoo. i am about one third of the way through it which yeah and really enjoying it it's um just As you said, has all the great things: monsters, magic, baddies, great adventure, um, a quest, (laughs) all those things. But yeah, Nikki writes really fantastic work. So hopefully, I'll have a review maybe for the next episode, not for this episode because we're going to be done. But yeah, and I'd love to get Nikki on for a chat. So I must. Oh, that would be awesome. Give her a little. No, so Nikki, if you're listening, yeah. come and have a chat, please. I, look, she's chatting all over the place to yeah, various people with the the Rackens familiar just being launched, and she did a great uh, launch. She did a, a Zoom launch because uh, she's like well, while she's in Australia, she's currently lives in New Zealand, and she had some great games, and we did some really good uh, science fiction history things challenges that we had to do. So yeah, it was good fun. It was really good.
2: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Sounds like I missed out on a party again. <laughs> <laughs> now, the next uh, awesome title that's been listed is... It's actually an anthology. But the book is called Weaving Words, Women About Women. And this can be found under our contemporary uh, genre. So Weaving Words is an anthology of diverse short stories written by women about women. It emerged through the collaboration of eight passionate writers who got together to share ideas, offer advice and give each other support their passion and creativity fueled their efforts and culminated in a book filled with unique and fascinating tales as varied as the authors themselves this eclectic collection spans a range of genres from murder to travel from comedy to mysticism sorry m- to mysticism that's why it's a tongue twister yeah. but that is weaving words women about women under our contemporary genre now as far as the authors are concerned it that uh, they include marie walk Maria Asaris, Adelaide Hunter What a cool name that is (laughs) Uh, Now Arana Gladeschenko I hope I pronounced that right Joanna Macris Conchita Gar-Santiago And A very favourite author of ours Maria P. Frino Yay Good on you
1: Maria
2: Yes, absolutely So if you're looking for She's a great supporter of
1: ours uh, And Mm -hmm. listens to the podcast And is a very good supporter Of all things Aussie literature So yeah Good to see your
2: uh, anthology there. Yeah, always uh, writing, Maria. So she's had a few releases, and this is another one that she's uh, been part of. And look, so if an anthology is something you love, then definitely Weaving Words, Women About Women uh, is worth uh, definitely a look and a purchase. So Mm. jump onto there and have a look. Now, a little bit more up my alley um, is a a book called Tasmanian Gothic Ah, by Michaela Kopievsky. And you can find this under the science fiction. This one's got a really uh, striking cover. I love it. Um, but Tasmanian Gothic is a grim, a dark biopunk thriller set in a decaying urban environment and lush mutant wilderness. So Solari wasn't alive when the ozone layer split like a gutted fish above Tasmania and spilled radiation over the edge of the stratosphere. But she's living with the consequences, the mutations, the gangland war, and the border wall that divides the affluent north from the contaminated south. Orphaned and alone in the southern reaches, Solari survives the chaos the only way she knows how, cooking the wildly addictive snow rock for local crime lord or, and now I'm going to try and pronounce this Warshulats Warshelots, let's say Warshelots for the local crime lord Warshulots and avoiding the mutants that skulk in the city's shadows. Now, that is Tasmanian Gothic by Michaela Kopievsky under a science fiction. Now, very uh, very interesting author because if, she, yep. if our readers haven't had a bit of a look, it might be uh, interesting to note that she's a former counter-terrorism advisor mm. uh, and has travelled to and worked in Asia, the Middle East and Africa. So if she brings any of that uh, history to her science fiction story set in a divided Tasmania, which is very intriguing, that will be a really cool read. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I've read her... Um um, the first book of her divided elements series it is part of the self-published science or self-published science fiction competition that I'm still as you know uh, working through and it was fantastic I really enjoyed it so I suspect and you know I've got the others on my to be read list so I suspect this will be just as good fantastic author yeah really good and awesome. tasmanian gothic you might remember that i when we talked, Ah, episodes and episodes ago, about the various genres and those kind of things, about all the science fiction and fantasy and all the various subgenres that Tasmanian Gothic came up as being a whole thing. So wow. hey, yeah, Mikhail has jumped in and is that, yeah giving us yeah, a story. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. So the next book I would like to let you know about, of course, listed on the website, is called A Remarkable Woman, and this is by author Jules Van Mill. You can find that under our kissing koala romance section (laughs) Uh, so a remarkable woman reads as follows french woman avril montidier leaves the tragedies of world war ii and an apprenticeship at dior in paris to emigrate to australia she arrives with a suitcase and a dream to start her own fashion business she is settling into melbourne when an event in her personal life forces her to flee to a cattle station in southern queensland to work as a nanny It is a sweeping saga of city and country, a family dynasty, love, heartbreak and fashion from an exciting new voice in commercial women's fiction. So that was A Remarkable Woman by Jules Van Mill. So again, we can find that under our romance section. Very good.
1: And we've been lucky enough to get an ARC copy of um, Jules's book. And that has gone to one of our very small group of uh, arc readers so Emily Rayburn is currently reading that for us and hopefully we'll be able to have a chat to Emily once she's had a chance to finish it and uh, hear what she thought of a remarkable woman.
2: Yes definitely. So that's just uh, a few of a new additions to the website. If you are an author listening to the podcast today or tomorrow or wherever in the future obviously you can't be listening to it in the past um, <laughs> please jump in I don't to- know you know <laughs> we
1: have a bit of portal fiction here a bit of time travel.
2: Yes, that's true. That's true. But if you are an Australian author and you would like to uh, put your book on our website for listings, so to try and get more eyes and uh, book lovers to see it, of course, jump onto Australianbooklovers.com, click on the uh, page that is for authors and all the information is there too. It's very easy to submit uh, your listing and we'll be happy to put it on free of charge, of course. The main thing is we just want the world to discover the wonderful talent we have here in Australia. And that is my news for episode 53. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I think now it's time to talk about today's wonderful guest. Tell us all about it. Well, we are going to be talking. Well, I'll be talking with uh, Mr. Jake O'Donnell. He's the author of Walk Like a Maniac, and that is the story of everyone who became a man in the 21st century. So, very, very cool premise, and uh, it was a, it was a fun chat, absolutely. So, but for the readers and audio listeners out there the book is walk like a maniac and as jake o'donnell puts it if men really are from mars then it's no surprise that it is a cold barren wasteland devoid of life (laughs) but while modern men still don't know who let the dogs out or whether shaggy did in fact do all those things they have at least tried their best or at the very least been present in a century that has fought for equal rights while also giving them equal lefts directly to the tune Hmm. Following the journey of the modern man through the seminal first-time moments of his life, Walk Like a Maniac provides an up-close and personal look at the embarrassing, ridiculous, mistake-ridden and underwhelming journey that all boys have to take on their way to becoming a man in the 21st century. As self-deprecating as it is insightful, Walk Like a Maniac not only examines the universal experiences that define the modern man, but also explores a hilariously detailed personal account of the journey. After all, what better way to really examine the psyche of 21st century men than through the eyes of someone who encapsulates everything it means to be one in all its, uh, bracket, limited, unbracket, glory and shame. <laughs> so Walk Like a Maniac, the story of everyone who became a man in the 21st century, actually reached number one on Amazon bestsellers list for adult humour within the first month. So, Very really good. cool. Congratulations, yeah. Jake absolutely so really cool conversation he is a man of many talents a man of many stories and uh, let's just jump into it because i think listeners you're gonna have a great time sounds good So awesome book lovers out there. Today's very special guest was kind enough to admit that he can't swim, sing, or properly ride a bike. He's never paid for a haircut that he's been happy with. Now, he has, however, spent a night in a dumpster, sliced his chest open sliding across the dance floor played a game of cricket in a French hostel lobby, had a seen old man blast, sorry, a seen old, old man blast diarrhea next to his car, and has been sent home from the hairdressers for having dirty hair. Now, apart from occasionally wearing salad dressing for aftershave and drinking beer out of ashtrays, you have described yourself as a pretty decent bloke. And I'm obviously reading here, not to bring up any uh, information or chat about dead hermit crabs. But nonetheless, Mr. Jake O'Donnell, <laughs> thank you so much for being part of the Australian Book Lovers podcast today. Welcome aboard.
3: Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: Now, obviously, one of the reasons we've got you here is to chat about your fantastic debut book, Walk Like... Uh, now, I've, I tried to t- talk about this title on one of our previous episodes, so I'm glad you're on today because I'd love to know the pronoun- correct pronunciation. Sorry. So is it Walk Like a Maniac, Walk Like a Maniac, or is it Walk Like a Man bracket eac? The story yes, of everyone.
3: Yeah, walk, like a, walk like a maniac is the one that i tend to run with but walk like a maniac uh works pretty well as well so um but yeah i tend to run with walk like a maniac lovely lovely
2: now i guess the first thing we're well, always going to delve into all about the uh the book and, and and the reflections that it promises to bring but i guess one of the first things i'd like to open up our conversation with is you know, what was the inspiration of the book? But not only that, what was the tipping point when it went from perhaps a concept in the back of your mind to actually that physical, right, it's happening and putting the book together?
3: Yeah, so I guess um, the inspiration for writing the book, I'll start with that one first, was I noticed just um, in the, the book world that there's not a lot of material out there that's catered directly to like a young male audience. So I noticed a pretty big gap in the market for that. My writing tends to um, tip into directly. So that was one sort of inspiration for writing the book. Um, Another inspiration was obviously, you know, the last couple of years, um, the world's changed a little bit. Comedy's become um, a little bit more controversial, I guess. So I wanted to be able to touch on, um, I guess, just some of the more subjects that have become taboo over the last couple of years Mm -hmm. um, and do it in a, a, a warm way that was, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, just in a warm way and in a respectful way as well with a sense of humility. Um, in terms of uh, coming up with the idea, the tipping point from when I was just sort of floating around in my head to getting it down on paper, it was a pretty quick process actually. So i had been doing a bit of writing previously anyway. And then, yeah, just one day I came up with the idea that my style of writing tended to be sort of personal anecdotal stories from my life Um, which is my preferred style of writing, I guess. I like writing about myself, funny stories. But i realized that, you know, if I wanted to write a book just about myself, you know, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not someone that people necessarily know. So it might not be, you know, much of an appealing get for people, I suppose. So I came up with the idea of making about men in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And pretty much from, you know, day one, I came up with the idea of the book, um, came up with the, the front cover design, Came up with a format the way that I wanted to have the chapters set out, and I just got stuck into it. So it was a pretty quick process, actually.
2: Well, so it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like you're pretty hyper focused once you decided to do it.
3: Yeah, so I had a lot of other things going on, you know, in life at the time as well. So, you know, I wasn't able to put, you know, time into it immediately all the time. Sometimes I'd have, you know, maybe a couple of months where I wasn't able to get get much writing done at all. But I was always, you know, jotting things down, coming up with ideas throughout that whole process. Mm
0: -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. I understand the book is basically a reflection on the journey. I I guess what it is to be, you know, taking that journey from boy to a man in the 21st century. And uh, so what I'd love to hear is your thoughts on what you might feel are some of the, you know, really stark contrasts between, say, you know growing up in the from beyond the year 2000 say versus the 70s 80s and 90s because I mean I, I guess there's a, probably a couple of obvious ones but when you contemplated the book and when you dived into it and, and put it together did you did you find any sort of themes emerging that you were surprised when it comes to that uh, difference between growing up in the 21st century versus you know the 20th century in the 80s and 90s
3: well I guess you know one of the most obvious differences would just be that you know life well, at least, you know, looking back, it seemed like it was simpler back then. I think life's become a little bit more complex and complicated. And with that, there's been things that pop up that maybe we weren't necessarily prepared for. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we weren't evolved to be able to deal with the new technological era. So I think that's thrown a couple of curveballs our way. Um, But I guess one of the common themes that, you know, popped up throughout the book is more just, you know, the ridiculous way in which you've responded to you know, a lot of these challenges rather than the challenges themselves.
2: Yeah, I, I think that is a, a quite a strong theme. And because I, I remember chatting with friends, I think I brought this up on a podcast before, you know, if I could zip back in time to, say, the, the early 80s, you know, um, and if a teacher said to me, look, you're going to have this fantastic device in your pocket in the future, and it's going to be able—you're going to be able to talk to anyone around the world. You're going to be able to see videos, access any information you want. You know, all, all the things that we take for granted today. What? How do you think society is going to change, or what impact do you think it might have on society? And I probably would have, you know, tried to come up with many of our very wise philosophical forecasts, and and also, you know, lots of fun stuff. But the irony is, I never would have picked. Uh, willy picks to use the, term, the, yeah. the kind of term, do you know what I mean? It's, it's literally become this device of just, uh, yeah, an online social uh, extravaganza of uh, just craziness. And that's not something that I would have picked. And I don't know if I'd, you know, it's easy for me to stand now as an adult and sort of say, oh, there's no way I'd want to go through that journey of becoming a boy or a man in today's, you know, surroundings. But then again, you know, I'm sure every generation says that when they look forward to what the new generations are, but, it would be a very, very different uh, process of growing up. So does that, do you think, also means that we've got different men emerging?
3: Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think also, you know, as you, you mentioned, the the willy picks being a, a predominant theme that people <laughs> tend to use their phones for. these days. I think that probably gives a bit of insight just into human nature in general, actually. I mean, we like to think that, you know, we probably use these devices for really important things, but the reality is that we just use them for, you know, really small, gratifying experiences i guess um yeah i think yeah we would almost certainly be having different men um, emerging now that we have in the past just because the world's so different there's you know completely different challenges that they're dealing with um completely different social pressures completely different social contexts so i think it's only natural to expect that you know we're going to get some uh, there's going to be a contrast between the men of yesterday and the men of tomorrow i guess
2: and where do you see yourself in this um this emerging sort of uh, change, would you say you, you're a little bit more rooted into that uh, 80s and 90s style of, of growing and, and the trials and tribulations of going through that growth period? Or would you say you fit a little bit more into the 21st century style?
3: Yeah, so I probably fit into the category of, you know, that generation that went through, you know, the first half of my childhood was the 90s and then the second half was the 2000s. So my childhood was basically that real sudden transformation from you know in the Mm. 21st century that we've witnessed so yeah I've, i've kind of been a part of that generation that witnessed uh you know the both worlds essentially the old world and the new world so um i felt like that positioned me perfectly to be able to make some observations about what it is to become a man in the 21st century
2: well, and and obviously you made a, an important point that it's um you tried to be very warm with the approach and 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 you know obviously focus on a lot of the humor of what can be a difficult journey uh and awkward journey. So, but before we get to some of the fun stuff, um I did want to touch on something that you mentioned in your book description, and and that is that you know, this this current uh this current century is working hard to, you know, striving for equal rights for us all, but whilst also you know, striking men in the chin so to speak so when it comes to you know th- those sort of proverbial punches that have been thrown our way um, what would you say would be some of the main ones that we could all identify quite easily or at least relate to
3: well I guess you know the social contexts are probably the most obvious one you know like I've just touched on before social contexts have changed you know pretty dramatically uh, in the last sort of 10 to 20 years, but there's still a lot of common themes that have just been the same forever, particularly, you know, as a young male as a part of it, you know, a male social group. There's certain dynamics that I think a lot of us would be able to relate to, certain, you know, peer pressure and things like that. And yeah, you know, I think that's probably a theme that we're all able to, you know, reflect on in our own lives. And that's something that everyone can sort of relate to, I guess.
2: You know, I think it for me, when I read that uh, little description all uh, that observation, should I say, I did have a quiet think about that. And I thought, hmm, I wonder, you know, what is, you know, what what are some of the new issues that are sort of slapping us in the face What in a time when it's, everyone's supposed to be getting along better than ever? And I think, you know, one of those is this huge dichotomy between, like I said, the, this tool we've got in our pocket that we can... Uh, access all the information in the world and most people just tend to be sticking down their pants and taking a photo (laughs) um now so you've got that sort of r-rated extreme no rules aspect of of social of the social life as well as online but at the same time the actual perceived the the, the perception that we want people to think of our culture and society is becoming even more g-rated and i think that sort of goes to a little bit to what you were saying about comedy as well, being it's getting a little bit more difficult to traverse those waters without offending somebody. So I, I, I think I find it quite schizophrenic to be in a society where on one hand it's, there's the extreme of everything happening, but on the other hand they want us to do the opposite of the extreme. For me, if I was to be growing, I mean, it's difficult enough living in it, but to be sort of uh, maturing in those times, it would uh, it, be one hell of a balancing act.
3: Yeah, definitely. I I know for me personally, uh, maybe you'll say I'm sure some of the 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 listeners would probably feel this way as well. Like I made plenty of mistakes when I was young. I was pretty reckless at times, pretty cavalier. So I think, you know, with the way that everything's now just out there, everything that you do, almost I'm pretty glad that, uh, you know, most of my childhood was in the '90s and early 2000s before um, this new wave of social media, I guess, because. As you have seen, you know, particularly young males tend to find themselves in a bit of trouble at times, mm-hmm. sticking their phone down their pants, and you know, other things that they tend to be doing with their phone, getting themselves into trouble. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I'm pretty grateful to have been sort of at least half before the 21st century in my childhood growing up.
2: Yeah, I, I agree, and I, and I do make a bit of a joke about that. I and mean, I'm sure that's not the, the the general description of a male on the planet Earth is not something. It's not defined what they do. You know, taking photos of, but but as far as that device, though, I think you're right. Um, when I grew up, of course, there was no chance of of every little antic or mistake or stupidity, and believe me, there was a lot of it. I am eternally grateful that there's no video footage, except for you know, odd, odd snippet here and there on that's been transferred from VHS or yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but I can't imagine what it'd be like to have so much of you know, because so many of the mistakes we make is while well, we're finding our way in the world. And it's it's sh- helped shape who we are, but it's definitely not a reflection of who we are. And any a lot of those mistakes, you know, you'd never want to do again. Or, and but I'd hate the idea to be permanently out there for everyone, for the world to see, and for everyone to be sharing it. And so I definitely think that's one of the big differences between you know coming of age in say the seventies, eighties, and nineties versus uh, today, where everything you do is has potential to be recorded. It, uh, it it must be such a challenge for so many young people out there.
3: Yeah, definitely. And a lot of those experiences are important ones. Like you said, you know, they're important for our development. We learn from them. Um, and, you know, with the fact that, like you mentioned as well, like VHS, you'd be hard pressed to find a video play these days. So, you know, even if you've got the tapes lying around somewhere, it'd be pretty difficult to watch. Whereas now everything's digital, it's out there. Once it's out there, it's out there forever as well. So, you yes. know, a lot of the mistakes that we were able to make, you know, they happened, we're able to move on and they're in the past. Whereas, you know, these days that might not be the case. You almost have to be a lot more careful about, you know, what mistakes that you can make, even though those mistakes tend to be pretty important for who we become as we grow up.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I I know that um, I listened to an interview you did recently and you mentioned that you lived for a while in Coolangatta on on the Gold Coast there, in northern New South Wales. So I also spent quite a few years on the Gold Coast as well. And, uh, you know, it was absolutely a time of, yeah doing naughty things having lots of fun and
3: That's, uh, you, isn't it
2: that is indeed um uh, and you know so that was i moved there just before the year 2000 so probably still not running around with phones with cameras back then filming everything and sharing also from yeah back then. <laughs> you might they, have
3: been able to get away with a bit more back then
2: yes yes absolutely and prior to that you know it was band days and on stage and all those antics but I'm just wondering you know do you think it's still today with all those uh that ability to film everything and, and having that risk of of stuff that you don't want the world to know about coming out and you know when you're putting the book together I'm not sure if you spoke with other guys or you know youths or whatever but is it, I'm, I'm guessing it's still pretty much an unofficial rite of passage to sort of go crazy in your, in your late teens, early 20s without and throwing all caution to the wind? Um, or do you think that this digital landscape is taking away or, or softening that approach to where you, you go crazy for a few years and literally, you know, make them st- learn from all those stupid mistakes that we all have made so many of?
3: I think people still tend to go pretty crazy in their late teens and early 20s. I think that's just, you know, the way that people are wired, particularly young men, I, you know, we can't really help ourselves, I don't think. Uh, I think, with the, as you mentioned, with you know the whole phone thing, in terms of you know being young and going out, and I guess one change that you know you tend to notice is that when we were doing that, it was very much in the moment. Um, you know, you didn't worry about you know trying to get a photo of everyone. You just you were there, you were enjoying what you were doing. Whereas now, I think you mentioned earlier as well about you know the way that people present themselves on social media. I think a big part of it now is you know making sure they capture you know, moments that they want people to see rather mm. than just being in those moments and enjoying them for what they are.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a really good and interesting point. And I wonder for how many people, you know, because we're talking obviously about the journey from boy to man. So there's so many uh, special moments in that journey that are, are just so important. And to be somehow not enjoying every ounce of that moment because you're already trying to perceive what other people are going to perceive it as and therefore almost stage some of those, what should be integral moments in time yeah that's a very interesting uh little thought bubble there to ponder
3: yeah i think it probably takes a little bit of the authenticity out of it as well and i guess that takes away from you know how special a lot of those moments are
2: yeah yeah well i guess that's uh we could call it the uh the, the age of filters because whether it be our, our psychologically we're putting filters on and for the perception of what we're doing and right down to the physical you know Filters on photos to make things look different. To Yeah, definitely. That's a really yeah. good
3: point you make, actually.
2: The, that, that change, you know, I think, you know, when I was growing up, you know, and it, I guess with sort of centralizing a bit of our talk on the phone at the moment, but it's such a powerful tool out there now, you know, it's, everyone's glued to it. you If you walk out without your phone, you're sort of lost. But one, one thing I thought about today and I've, I've thought about before that I think is missing today is, you know, that that rush, that fear, that anxiety that came from if you liked a girl and you wanted to give them a call and perhaps, you know, if you if you could build that courage up to ring them up and ask them out when, when you're young, not only did you have to cross that hurdle of, of, of the anxiety and then all the awkwardness of asking the girl out, but you usually, you, well, you had to ring their home. And that meant... Either their mum or dad—the ch- <laughs> chance of them answering—and so you had a, a, a gatekeeper there as well, and that throws a whole new level of anxiety. And that is definitely one process I think's gone now.
3: Yeah, definitely. And you were calling from your own landline as well, which is probably in the kitchen or something like that. So chances were that your mum was cooking there as well. So you had to also do this in front of your mum while yeah. having to get through um, the girl's mum as the gatekeeper as well. So
2: exactly yeah so the privacy definitely wasn't there as well so those embarrassing moments some of them had to be played out yeah for all the family to see yeah, different <laughs> audience there. and then of course you get rejected anyway so it was all for yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now you know obviously dating i think is probably going to be one of the biggest challenges growing up it always is one of the challenges growing up and today there's a whole new range of dating. The question I'd like to put to you is, do you think that there is, you know, just discussing things like having to make that phone call or, you know, doing all things that we, we needed to do prior to, you know, having this mobile technology, but do you think there's a magic that's been lost in the process or... Is there just a new form of magic romance to be found amongst those people growing up now that have never known a world without mobile phones or internet? So is there just an equal amount of magic to be found? Or do you think that we really have lost some sort of, you know, uh, rite of passage magic that came from having to really strive hard to reach out to people when it comes to finding that someone special?
3: Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both. To be honest, I think uh, one thing, just with the way that the world is now, people's attention is, is getting dragged um, in all different directions. Um, so I think one positive about you know the way that things are at the moment is you have to be more interesting than maybe you had to be back in the day. The uh, range of people that people can interact with is much bigger, so there's obviously much more options out there. Um, there's a lot more things for them to be captivated by. You've got Netflix, you've got YouTube, you've got things on their phone, videos, TikTok, whatever. Um, So I think one thing that, one positive at least, is that you have to be more interesting as a person now. Mm. Um, I think it's added a level of magic to it. But like you said, I think there is something about, you know, having to make that phone call on the landline in front of your mum, talking to the girl's parents, getting rejected um, in front of your family, like you mentioned. And I think there was a real magic to that. Whereas now you can just send a text message. It doesn't really take... You know, you're not really putting yourself out there too much. You don't have to worry about, you know, what words you're going to say, you know, as you're speaking. Um, So I think in that sense, there has been maybe a little bit of magic that's been lost. Mm. Like I said, I think the fact that people need to present themselves in more interesting ways, you need to be able to hook people in more. Um, So I think that's added um, an interesting uh, layer to it as well
2: yeah i definitely of course hope that there's no magic lost um' it's, it's it's again you know being an adult it's easy to think that there might be and uh i agree that i suspect there probably is a little bit but there's so much new magic to be discovered and uh yeah it must be difficult to and fun at the same time because it, it sort of everything's turned up to eleven isn't it you want to be the funniest or the toughest or the best or the, you know whatever it is like you've yeah, really, exactly. you've really got to rise above or at least put yourself out there as in in this mass of digital competition so very interesting uh times we're living in but now i understand when it comes to love and and uh, romance and, and those sorts of things uh a part of your book description mentions uh that you might have uh, been in a period where you were foregoing duty of care at a primary school to pursue some forbidden love so i would love to hear a little bit more about that because that sounds
3: quite uh
2: quite uh, intriguing
3: Yeah. So I used to work at a primary school doing before and after school care. This is going back probably about 10 years now. And there's just two of us working there. So there was me and then there was the coordinator. The coordinator was a girl that I was going to uni with at the time. Um, She was a year or two older than me. She was actually the sister of my sister's boyfriend. And the cousin of a couple of my really close friends as well. So there's this big family where our family was kind of intertwined with theirs. Uh-huh. Um, but basically, um, it was a three-hour shift in the afternoon. We'd prepare some food and then we'd just basically go outside, let the kids play for a bit. Uh, we were both in relationships at the time. Um, but we were, like I said, pretty young. I think I might have been 19, 20, maybe 21. Um, and she would have been 22, 23. And just over time, obviously, you know, it's a pretty small space in the, the cramped kitchen of a after-school care program at a primary school. Pretty intimate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a Libra as well, so you know I'm a romantic guy. <laughs> and just over time, we started to get closer, I guess. One day she came to work and mentioned that, you know, her partner wasn't really into her anymore, um, and they broke up, and that kind of just threw a cat amongst the p- pigeons for us as a new dynamic. And then, yeah, basically... I told her that I was pretty keen on her. I broke up with my girlfriend as well. And we had a bit of a, it was almost like a Jim and Pam style sort of will they, won't they dynamic going on for a while. Ah. Um, But yeah, basically during that period, we'd play a game of around the world or cricket or whatever, but basically our attention was just focused on each other. The kids, and an axe murderer could have come into the school; We would have been none the wiser at the time, I think. (laughs) So yeah, the duty of care wasn't really there at the time. Um, but it ended up going pear shaped anyway. So, oh, okay. A lot of young romances do. Never mind.
2: Well, obviously the uh, the excitement and the passion was there in the moment. So, and I think the uh, the kids probably had a, a bit of an
3: idea as well. <laughs> they... Probably. <laughs> maybe <laughs> some of the older ones, the five grade five sixes. Maybe I'm sure the preppies were probably a little bit, um, yeah, not too aware of what was going on. Yeah
2: the old uh, passion in the workplace. That's
3: uh, it. Yes. The, we another talk- important step another important mistake.
2: Yes. I think we will we be told over and over again, not to how uh, you know, the risks that come with that. And I think it's like touching a hot stove. We've all got a bit burned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes yeah.
3: we we'll just go grub on there.
2: When you look back on the, uh, the joys, the, uh, the awkwardness, the embarrassment, the fun, all those emotions that come with uh, growing up, it, and making your way to being a man what would be some elements that you would, uh, if you had to sit down with somebody about to make that journey, so 10-year-old, 11-year-old about to begin that? Th- what are some of the the key points that you think you'd like to, uh, you know, or or might have already mentioned in the book, or what, what would you sort of, what sort of words of wisdom and guidance would you give to kids making on their journey towards being a man now? Say, for example, when it comes to starting with uh, romance, what uh, what sort of romance tips would you have?
3: Well, I guess the number one advice i would have would be just to enjoy it. And, you know, you are going to make mistakes along the way. I think a pretty normal reaction to those would be one of shame and embarrassment trying to hide away from them. But I think, you know, some of those embarrassments are the best stories that you have. And in the moment, they feel terrible. But looking back on them, there's something that I know for me personally, I'll look back on a lot of those embarrassing moments really fondly. So I think the number one advice that I would have is just have a sense of, humor and humility about yourself um, and the experiences that you go through there's going to be some pretty awkward moments uh, and like I said in the moment they're going to feel pretty terrible but I think you know just enjoy them because you will look back and they'll be pretty important stories that you have to tell to your friends and your kids one day down the track so I think that would be um, the number one advice that I would give.
2: Yeah yeah and like I said you need to don't let those that the, the fear of being embarrassed get in the way because you know what they say you miss 100% of, of the shots you don't take. So definitely got to charge forward and, and grab life with both hands. Now, of course, when it comes to love, there's usually another feature that comes with love or, or the pursuit of love or the pursuit of romance, especially when you're younger because you're usually out and about, you're, you're in the clubbing or whatever it might be. So as a bloke, you, sooner or later, you're coming into fight territory. Uh, now, I heard you uh, reveal a little bit of a tale on the, the interview that I heard you that you recorded recently about yeah. uh, finding yourself in a bit of a blue, as they call them, uh, due to what was probably stupid behavior on behalf of a date. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Can you tell me, you know, when it comes to fighting, like is is that something that you explore a lot in the book? I mean, obviously it's something that uh, boys do and teenagers do and men do, and some people, some of us just don't grow up and get out of that, and some of us have never thrown a punch or taken a punch in our life, but it's always in the periphery. But uh, just curious as to what sort of role you think fighting plays for uh, a boy's journey to being a man.
3: Yeah, definitely. So the, the format of the book is, you know, every chapter is about, you know, a seminal first time moment in our life so it might be you know our first girlfriend our first drink and one of the chapters is actually our first fight and it does touch on that directly so the story that you heard me telling uh on the podcast that I was on recently that's actually in the book as well so that was the story of my first fight um I've never actually thrown a punch in my life um but as you can tell from the story that I told and the story in the book I cupped one um, you know, there's probably been plenty of times when I maybe deserved a bit of a smack and never copped it. And on this one occasion, you know, I wasn't the one in the wrong, you know, not that copper one. So, but yeah, I think fighting is probably, you know, like you said, even if you, you haven't been in one yourself, it's always on the periphery. And I think particularly at the moment, like there's a lot of, um, you know, in the media that you see of just you know, pretty ordinary behavior involving violence with men. Um, so, yeah, I think it is, you know, even if you haven't experienced it yourself, it certainly is, you know, it's on the periphery, like you mentioned at least. So I think everyone's got, um, you know, some story to tell about a fight, whether they were in it or not. Um, so, I think it is a pretty seminal um, experience in growing up and becoming a man.
2: Yeah. And like I, I look back in, on my high school days that I remember some of the best friendships I've ever made. It started off as a fight, and you'd have a you know, little bit of a, uh, love tap or two and then you, you you become besties so it almost seemed like that was the, that was how you made your good friends because you'd just be drawn together for a fight for no reason at all obviously it was something important there at lunch obviously important. <laughs> but uh yeah no so and then but obviously, that's not the case. Uh, as you get older, having worked at many of bars and nightclubs, I've seen plenty of fights go on, and usually for really stupid reasons, and uh, but usually involving some sort of alcohol. Now, we've talked about a few serious issues, but ultimately, the 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 book, I believe, uh, debuted or, or reached number one on in the uh, humour section of Amazon. Is that right?
3: Yeah, it did. So within the first month, it got to number one, yeah, in the adult humour section on Amazon, which is pretty pleasing to see. That's um, awesome. Obviously, for yeah, debut book, you know, you can be a little bit unsure about, you know, how it's going to go. I wasn't, you know, a prominent writer prior to that. Um, I didn't have a big audience. So I was really pleasing to see that it did so well when it came out.
2: Yeah, that's magic. And I mean, I know when we started uh, chatting earlier, you mentioned that, you know, Put in the book, you you didn't yourself sorry didn't consider yourself a celebrity, but by the sounds of it, you're a celebrity in the making at the moment. So your journey you've probably gone from boy to man, and now you're going from man to celebrity, starting with the release of this book. But uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe just uh, let myself and the the readers know just a little bit more of an insight about you, Jake, as a person and, and the life you've led. Because I understand you've done quite a bit of travel, and I understand you you, you actually did some writing for travel as well, didn't you?
3: I did, yes. I did some uh, like content writing for a travel company. I was doing a lot of um, writing, a lot of stories from my travels, uh, which kind of started the passion for, you know, the writing that led me to this book. Or, you know, a real personal, anecdotal style of um, writing. I guess so I did some writing for um, a travel company, and then I um, did some uh, advertising work for small companies. Um, they'd come to me with whatever their product was, and I'd. Come up with, I'd write and direct and film and star in. Um, just some humor-based advertisement videos for them. And then I got into some uh, just sketch comedy writing for a bit. and oh, I, was, wow. I got into, I started writing the book. So but like you mentioned, yeah, I've done a fair bit of travel. I lived in the UK for two years. I traveled all around Europe. Done a lot of traveling since then. Um, obviously, being a young man backpacking around Europe, there's a lot of drinking, um, a lot of silly behavior. And, um, be, yeah. I'm 30 now. It's something that I haven't really been able to grow out of. Uh, you know, I tend to, after a few beers, do the worm and just do plenty of ridiculous things. Um, so I think, if, you know, for the readers if they're, or the listeners, if they've read the book, they'll get a pretty clear picture of, you know, I'm a pretty silly man, a uh, pretty um, ridiculous human being. But yeah, like I, I mentioned earlier, with it's always coming from a place of warmth. And
2: it sounds like comedy obviously has a special place in in your life and and in, you know, what makes you. So, I mean, is comedy writing or comedy in general something that you're going to pursue a little bit stronger moving forward?
3: Yeah, I think my writing will probably always be humour-based. You know, humour's been a big part of, you know, my identity forever. I always wanted to be the class clown. Um, You know, I always wanted to make my friends laugh. Um, and, you know, similar to, you know, this silly behavior that i was mentioned before, just, you know, always looking to make people laugh and entertain them, something that I haven't really grown out of either. So I think, you know, it's a huge part of my personal identity. It's something that I love, something that I'm really passionate about. You know, I think that comedy and humor is probably, you know, one of the, if not the most interesting thing that we do as human beings. i have a real passion for it. Um, I love everything that, you know, an attempt at being funny says about a person. One thing that I really appreciate about comedy is that you know there's not a lot of more visceral, uncomfortable feelings than when you make a joke and it just falls flat. So I love the risk-taking that comes with trying to be funny as well.
2: Ah, interesting.
3: But yeah, comedy is a huge part of my writing style. It's what I love to do. Um, You know, I love trying to make people laugh. And I think, you know, one feedback that, well, a pretty common feedback that I've got from the book is that it was able to make people laugh out loud. So that's probably something that, you know, I'm most pr- proud about, about the you know, over the, you know, reaching number one in the adult humour section. I think the fact that, you know, people have actually reached out and said that the book made them laugh out loud, which I think is something that can be quite difficult to do with the written word. A lot, so much of, you know, humour is contextual um, and in the moment. Uh, and there's a, a lot of cues that people probably aren't even aware of that all factor into, you know, what's making that person laugh. So I think You know, being able to create that context out of thin air um, as you're writing it is something that I I thoroughly enjoy about writing um, and something that I've been really proud that I've been able to do with the book. Um, But yeah, I think going forward, comedy will be a big theme um, with my writing, whatever writing that I'm doing.
2: Yeah, well, all, all the more power to you to be able to to write with you know comedic edge because I can't I could can, I can only imagine it must be from my perspective it's super difficult because I just don't think I could be funny writing it's just not something I do but not only that I think it's fantastic the way you mentioned how you set how you sort of establish the book with each each sort of chapter being that that first you know a momentary first for you with you know in discovering all those things in life and I think from a reader's perspective um it must be really well warm to, to use your description it must be a warm feeling to be able to laugh and and laugh and enjoy the humor of your moment but also letting that uh, give them the opportunity to reflect on their first fight their first kiss their first whatever it might be
3: yeah definitely and uh, along with the uh, you know being able to uh, make people laugh out loud the probably the other most prominent feedback that i've got is that the book's been super relatable for people it's you know people I've been able to reflect on their own firsts and, you know, relate to the experiences that I've had. I've had a bunch of people reach out and be like, you know, the exact same thing happened to me. Um, so the first half of every chapter is about what those firsts were like for just men generally. Um, so, you know, the things that might've happened you know, for that particular first and just the ridiculous ways that men typically responded to it. And then the second half is always what those firsts were for me. So mm-hmm. I think between those two um, sections of each chapter, generally there's something in there that people will be able to relate to and reflect on their own first from that.
2: Yeah, that's such a cool cool idea, cool way to do it. Uh, and you've probably got a wealth of uh, fun times and memories to draw from. So on, on your travels and backpacking and whatnot, what would be off the top of your head? Would you say was the the funnest place you visited? So somewhere you probably laughed the most, or did and discovered, you know, you, or put yourself in the most craziest situations.
3: Yeah, so I, I most of my backpacking was done solo. So I went over there by myself. Um, a lot of the traveling that I did was by myself. So I, I always said that the places that you go are only as good as the people you're with. So that was always a big factor in how much I enjoyed a place. My favorite place that I went to. Uh, was Budapest, actually, which I think it's wow it was back then it was maybe a little bit more of a hidden gem. I think now people are pretty aware of how cool it is. Um, but I went there, I stayed at a party hostel. I was only supposed to be there for a couple of nights, end up staying for five days. but I just had to leave after that because my body was just completely decimated. but that was definitely the funnest place that I went. I met some awesome people there. Um, they have like a different night every night, so they might have like open mic night. They have a pool party one night. Uh, they have karaoke night. Um, yeah, that place was just awesome. I love Spain as well. I went to um, Madrid. I actually, split my chin open doing the worm and needed five stitches. You know, <laughs> okay. And, uh, yeah, that's a story that's in the book as well. And then five days later, I went down to. Uh, Lagos in Portugal still had the stitches in my face, and I tried to do the worm again, and then the stitches busted open. I ended up getting an infection, and that was towards the end of my travel. So that's what I knew it was probably time to wrap it up and head to London because. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have lasted much longer if I kept going the way I was
2: going. Well, I think whether it's the worm or when I was growing up, it was the uh, the caterpillar, you know, breakdancing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I remember, you know, nearly breaking my hand or severely spraining my wrist anyway, trying to do this showing off to him, the caterpillar. So that was my yeah, review right and lot right. of my uh, breakdancing career. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, uh, I, I can only imagine that uh, doing the worm wall intoxicated anywhere is going to be a recipe for potential disaster yeah, but you would
3: have thought after doing it about two thousand times i'd probably be a little bit better at it but i still managed to find myself injured you know pretty really i had a carpet burn on my face the other day from doing it as well so oh, okay
2: well yeah. so you might have to uh, sit down pencil design for a uh, a worm outfit including like a, a to, face yeah. helmet so you can go like real extreme worm
3: Definitely. I call myself the people's worm because I bleed for the people whenever they demand it. So there we go. There's a range of t shirts you need to be <laughs> getting out
2: within the next 24 hours. The people's worm.
3: I like that. It's a good business idea.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. When it comes to all the traveling, etc., is that uh, something you're going to be pursuing again in the future or are you settled down there? Because you're based in Melbourne now, aren't
3: you? Based in Melbourne. Yes, yeah. so I still do traveling, but the traveling that I do now is pretty different. I mean, Obviously, so I did. You know, a big, I went backpacking for three months straight while I was over there. I did, I was working in a school when I was over there too. And over there, they have half term breaks as well. So about every five or six weeks, you get a week off over there. So I jet off to somewhere else in Europe um, when I was there as well. These days, um, it's a little bit less regularly, I suppose. But I still tend to try and do some traveling, you know, once or twice every year go to, um, a, a different country that I have been to. Obviously, the last couple of years has been a little bit more challenging. We've got a trip to yes. Fiji coming up in July, I think, which has oh, been beautiful. booked in for about two years that we haven't been able to get to. So, yeah, we've got Fiji. I think later this year, my partner's um, from the UK, so we're going back over there for a wedding um, for some of our friends as well. So I've got a couple of trips lined up um, for this year, and then I think next year we're talking about maybe going to South America and unleashing the people's worm over there.
2: Oh, there you go, taking the worm all around the globe. That's it.
3: <laughs> and is
2: is uh, travel writing still play a big part for you?
3: Uh, not particularly, nice. No. So I've more moved into you know the book space. Obviously, I've got my day book now. Later this year, I've got a few other things, um, priorities that I've got to focus on for the next couple of months. But in the back half of this year, um, I'd like to sit down and start my next project.
2: Oh, and, and uh, my- are you allowed to reveal any? Uh,
3: Hints still, still very early stages, um, in terms of you know what it's going to be about. But I think for those that have read uh Walk Like a Maniac, you get a pretty good sense for my writing style. Um, and yeah, you'll have a pretty good idea of the type of writing that you can expect.
2: Ah. Well, speaking of maniac, i have be meant to ask when it comes to men and our behavior in general, and of course, that saying behavior in general is pretty wide net. We've got a whole world of different people, so but what in your head, what would you say? is the difference or what's the defining line between being a man and being a maniac? Because at some point I thought I was going to grow up, but uh, I still don't feel like I've grown up. I still don't feel like a, you know, quote, unquote, man. And, you you know, growing up, I thought the world was full of adults. And, of course, when I look now, I'd be more inclined to say at the moment that countries, or should I say, there are many countries being run by maniacs. So what's the difference between a man and a maniac, do you think?
3: Well, I know for me, it's about six beers usually. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you mentioned, I mean, obviously, when you're younger, you think that you know all these adults are walking around; they've got you know a really good idea of what they're doing. And then you become an adult, and you realise that no, no one really knows what they're doing. Uh, you know, there's obviously in some facets of our life where we can maybe act like men, but yeah, a lot of the time, particularly after a few beers. Um, there's certainly a lot of maniac behaviour in that. I think even you know, some of the more sensible people have their moments where you know, those maniac behaviours start to creep in. And it could be just something as small as just you know, a silly reaction to something that's happening in their life. You, know, you were talking before about the willy snaps, um, but obviously there's other you know, stupid things that people do with their phones and just the way that they respond you know, to situations socially. Um, yeah, that maniac behaviour tends to creep in. Even mm. with the best of intentions,
2: and I wonder too when it comes to you know leaderships where, where people are acting a little bit like a maniac. I wonder if it's uh if there's any correlation between being a maniac in a position of power and maybe not having had those formative years as a youth where you just let your head out and go crazy and make all the stupid mistakes and and test boundaries, etc. It'd be interesting to know that's uh I have no idea, of course, I'm just a spitball of <laughs> silly ideas, but yeah, you kind of. You know, because at the moment, you know, when it comes to men, we're the ones that can be truly violent. And uh, I always wonder, like, you get in a position of power and what what flicks that switch where you become, you know, especially with the, the way of the world today and the events we're seeing unravel today. So, yes, uh, you know, but I can see the other maniac side of things as well, which is just uh, a temporary state of mind for many of us. I guess we can, uh, like you said, have a few bevvies or get a bit too excited uh, <laughs> at the football or, or, or wherever it might be or surfing wherever it is so yeah we could definitely be maniacs um, i think
3: it's good to let it creep in every now and then have a bit of fun with it too can't be serious all the time
2: no no that's right and so what, what sort of uh comedic themes would you be looking at in your next book or, or what are some comedic themes when it comes to life or writing do you have on the on the back burner that you'd like to attack in the near future
3: Well, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the thing that I really love about writing is writing personal stories. Um, I I also mentioned about how I like reflecting on the embarrassing moments that I've had to go through. Um, I think that's probably the number one um, thing that I want people to get out of the book is just the importance of having, you know, a sense of humility and humour about yourself and, you know, the world around you. Um, And I wanted people to read the book and see that not only is it okay for you to laugh at yourself, it's okay for other people to laugh at you sometimes as well. In the end, we're all laughing together. So I think, you know, for my next project, um, I'll be looking to incorporate some personal stories, some embarrassing stories from my life again. Um, And like I did with Walk Like a Maniac, obviously there's a theme of becoming a man in the modern world and the theme of the uh, the seminal first-time moments. I like to generally tie in a bit of a theme with the work that I do. Um, so I think for my next book, you can probably expect something not the same as Walk Like a Maniac. It won't be about becoming a man necessarily, but it'll be some type of theme tied in with it, I think.
2: Being that the the format that you've written uh, Walk Like a Maniac in and how each sort of section touches on something that's uh, personal to you, is it something you've considered uh, making a live performance as well, like, like a comedy slash spoken word?
3: I have, yes. <laughs> when I was actually living in London... Uh, we're all kind of heading back to Australia around a similar time. And as a going away present uh, to the guys, I was going to do a stand-up comedy performance.
2: Oh, okay.
3: It never ended up eventuating. And then over the years, um, you know, there's been a couple of times when I was going to do it. And then it just hasn't, basically hasn't eventuated. I've always said that my dream job would be um, to be a stand-up comedian. Um, but I, th- I think it's, it's definitely a bucket list thing. Mm-hmm. But, not looking to pursue it as a career just yet, I don't think.
2: Well, you can always just dip, dip your toes in the water. How is the uh, how's Melbourne bouncing back with regards to its arts then now that so many, all the restrictions are lifting? Is the uh, is there live comedy venue sort of popping back up now, or is it still more focused to the, to the universities? Or
3: yeah, no, there is the comedy festivals coming up. Um, I think next month as well. So there's oh, wow. also comedy festival running through. The nightlife's bounced back, um like we were talking off air earlier. <laughs> I had a few beers last night, so the nightlife's clearly going well for me. Um, but, yeah, I think Melbourne's starting to bounce back really well, which is good. And I think music's coming back. Um, there's been a few gigs. The comedy festival's coming up. So I think the art scene's starting to thrive again too, which is good.
2: Well, who knows? Maybe may be the adventures you have in Melbourne now that everything's opening up again and starting with the comedy festival. could just give you a whole lot of fuel to just do a part two of... Fingers uh, crossed. ...Walkamadiac. <laughs> <laughs> Because I said to myself, I don't think I've grown up, but do you think you've become a man or do you think you're still in that process? Or do you think any of us, is it just we're always striving or heading towards a man but never actually wake up one day and go, oh, I'm a full grown man. I I think
3: it's just one of those things that you probably never get to that stage, to be honest. It's always kind of a work in progress, I guess. I mean, technically, I'm a man, I'm 30 years old, but certainly, you know, a boy in many respects, particularly if you'd ask my partner at times, I'm sure she'd agree with that.
2: Yeah, and I, I don't know what the difference is between a boy and a man sometimes, but uh, I look, I'm I'm 48, so and I still wake up feeling like I'm 16, so I still get excited about a video game or a horror movie okay. or a <laughs> good surf or, you know, just... The the responsibilities are there, sure, but it feels like I'm play acting, pretending, I guess, or playing a role when when, when you step in the adult, again, inverted comma, inverted comma, adult world, as opposed to I just don't, I haven't, I don't feel like I'm a big grown man. I just, I just feel like I'm a a teenager just with different
3: numbers. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're all in that same boat, to be honest. Yeah, which is not a bad position to be in. No, definitely a- not. Obviously, yeah. if you're uh, you know behaving like a full-grown man all the time, life would probably be pretty boring, I'd imagine. So it's good to have those childish moments at times.
2: Yes, yes, without uh, anyone filming it, though. Yeah,
3: exactly. Just do it in private, in privacy of your
2: own home. That's right, yes. And uh, now, so you're going to be working hard on a new book. Uh, what about promotion for this current book? Uh, is, have you got anything special planned? Or would there be Melbourne, any book tours or more interviews coming up um, what sort of avenues are you pursuing to, to let the world have a nice warm smile and, and a bit of a giggle and, and join you in these first moments in life
3: yeah so I've got a couple of podcasts book in obviously um, you know I've done one um, a couple of weeks ago I've got this one in today and yeah I've got a string of them coming up now so I'm looking to lock quite a few of those in get the book out there to a lot of different audiences that probably aren't aware of it Um, that's the main priority at the moment I guess like I said I've got a few other things I've got to focus on um, outside of the writing as well at the moment it's taking up a little bit of my time Um, but podcast is probably the main avenue at the moment Um, and then yeah looking to maybe try maybe looking to a book tour getting the book into the hands of some reviewers as well Um, and those are probably the next steps from here I think
2: What's, um, if you don't mind me asking, what's been your relationship to writing? Uh, you mentioned you've written a few things before and obviously you've written for travel. Um, when did you sort of find yourself gravitating to, to the art of writing?
3: So it was actually when I came back from living overseas. So I came back, I was unemployed. I had a lot of time on my hands. Um, I had to wait for um, a few checks and things to come through for work. So I, I knew someone that was working in travel at the time. Um, they reached out to me to just write some stories for them. Um, which I did, wrote some stories from uh, my travels. The first story I ever wrote actually is one that's in the book. It's a story about splitting my chin open, doing the worm in Madrid on a pub crawl. Um, but I got some good feedback from that. Um, and then basically from there, I took over all the content writing for them. Um, and like I mentioned earlier as well, I got into you know, some advertisement stuff, some freelance videos, and yeah, really just kicked off from there. To be honest, so something that I was always good at in school, but I wasn't a great student. I certainly wasn't a super motivated student. Um, so from the early part of my um, adulthood, wasn't doing much writing at all. But then yeah, in the last sort of five to six years, I really got into it, uh, honed my craft, and then that all led up to writing my debut book.
2: Yep. Well, it's a beautiful craft to uh, be on board isn't it because i mean you can take it anywhere you go so even if whether you, you have a lot of travel lined up in your future or whether you don't it doesn't matter you can no matter where you are you can write which is cool uh which is one of the things i love about writing but yeah definitely can you can you tell myself and our our amazing listeners maybe if you had a pluck say i don't know one or two borderline embarrassing moments of your you know uh period growing up what what would they be What's something that sometimes wakes you up at night and you don't know whether to laugh or, or cringe and hide under the covers when you think back?
3: There's quite a lot of them to choose from, to be honest. <laughs> so it'd be pretty difficult to yeah pinpoint just a couple. But I guess, um, you know, you you heard me telling a story about my first fight on the podcast that I was on the other day. Um, that was a, an embarrassing story. There's obviously... Um, what would be a good one to share? When my, my first drink of alcohol, actually, so I was about... 14, so I was pretty young. We used to go to this thing called the Eclipse. It was an underage disco in Melbourne. It was where the who's who of the northern suburbs of Melbourne would meet. Okay. Um, and, yeah, so me and a group of mates, I, it was actually just, I was mates with one of them, and it was his group of mates. It was a mate of mine from footy, um, and he asked me if I wanted to, you know, drink some grog before going to the underage disco. Obviously, being been 14 years old. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I had to give ten dollars the ten dollar buy-in to be a part of it. It got to the night it was on a Friday night. Obviously being fourteen years old, our parents wouldn't buy the alcohol for us. So it gets to the, the evening of empty handed. So we had to loiter around at the front of just a alcohol shop and just ask passerbys <laughs> if they'd buy it for us.
2: Hit the random. Eventually someone
3: up. said yes. I'm not sure what this stranger was doing buying alcohol for, you know, six. 14 year old boys i'm not sure you know what type of man this person was um but we ended up buying red bears i'm not sure if you remember red bears
2: no not
3: not something i'm familiar with they were just like a sweet almost like a a udl type um drink so just sweet um vodka based but yeah we got a six pack of that shared between about six or seven of us Uh, we're drinking it at the underneath the train line which is near where the um underage disco was
2: well, it's all about setting setting isn't it it's all
3: about- <laughs> I was obviously nervous I'd never drank before I didn't really know these guys um so I st- start drinking my you know three quarters of a can that I was able to have so it's going down quite obviously quite palatable it's tasty I thought I might actually be a natural or something here then all of a sudden I could feel it brewing in my stomach which originally I thought might have been a sense of pride of how well I was handling the alcohol but unfortunately that wasn't the case and I just spewed up all over myself just this I've only been in my system for probably about two minutes, I reckon, I oh, had wow. to the whole town and just vomited everywhere. I, like I said, I only knew one of the people there. There was these five other guys who seemed to be handling their alcohol pretty well for 14 years old. Obviously, I was pretty nervous and embarrassed, so that was one that took me a little while to get over, actually. <laughs>
2: Well, hopefully it meant you didn't jump straight back on the bag rack and, and hang out under bridges at no, 14, yeah. talking to random people the And what about, uh, you know, when it comes to... You, I obviously haven't read the book yet, so do you go into any heartbreak territory, like the first time uh, a heartbreak happens?
3: Yeah, so I've got the story of my first girlfriend, which was... Um, it's focused around our first kiss, actually. So this was, you know, the early 2000s. I was in Year 7, so... Probably 13 years old. Um, we were the it's and potentially only couple of the year seven at the time. we have come up to our first sort of unisex party, I guess, and everyone was talking about the fact that our first kiss was gonna be at this party. I was terrified, like I had no idea how to kiss a human being. I was like one of those people that you would see in TV shows where they have to practice on their hands. <laughs> trying to study shows but I just couldn't wrap my head around the mechanics of it I was completely nervous uh, and the first kiss that we had I actually was just like a platonic kiss it was like a how a mother would kiss their baby so I just had no idea how to execute like a proper full tongue passion I had no idea whether the tongue was involved or not but eventually I was able to wrap my head around and execute a proper kiss with a bit of passion in there
2: there you go practice makes perfect doesn't it that's it and so many cool things, like you know, you like I said, the first, yeah, those memories of the first party or the first real party where you feel like an adult, and uh, oh, so, much, so much fantastic experiences for everyone to have. And uh, I bet it must have been super fun to, to sit back and reminisce on so many days and, and relive experiences and, and just bring that uh, glow of, of such special memories back while you're writing. So, congratulations yeah, on the book!
3: Yeah, it's been good to share it with people as well. Obviously, those stories that I look back on really fondly. Um, so to be able to share that with you know important people in my life it's been really rewarding and enjoyable as well.
2: And there's something so honest about comedy or, or comedic writing and or comedy in general, isn't there? It's uh, by incorporating that that sense of humor with the, then it kind of the, the walls break down a little bit where you can reveal a little bit more about yourself. I think there's something so honest about comedy.
3: Yeah, definitely and that's something that I've really strived for particularly with this book is just being really raw, uh, honest and unflinching in my, observations about myself, you know, I don't shy away from, you know, any of the embarrassment that I've had to go through. Um, You know, I steer into it in fact with the book and let's, you know, something that I really wanted to emphasize and, you know, make a strong point of with my writing is just, like you said, that honesty, you know, if I wanted to make, you know, funny observations about other people in the world around me, I think in order to be able to do that, I needed to, you know, make those observations about myself as well. otherwise if i'm just pointing the finger at everybody else you know it might come across in a way that i don't want it to come across whereas i show that you know, i'm pointing the finger at myself too and that ultimately you know i'm the butt of the joke Um, i think it draws people in people feel more at ease to be able to laugh about some of the other things that i point out in the book
2: yeah and it's, it's 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 such a relief sometimes when, you know, if you look back in, like, for, say, for example, myself, I look back at some absolutely cringe, cringeworthy, embarrassing moments. But then when you discover that it was kind of something that everyone shared at some point or experienced at some point. And it, uh, it, for me, then it makes it easier to laugh at myself, knowing that, I was, you know, it was something that happens to us all at some point. And so I think it's a beautiful thing about it being honest and 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 brave enough to share those stories. It allows other people to realize sometimes realize that uh, oh, I'm not the only one that's had that cringeworthy moment or made that mistake that haunts me. In my, you know, yeah, definitely.
3: Night. And I think you know being able to own that rather than have those you know experiences own you is something that's you know really vital and you know useful for people as well just in their daily lives to be able to laugh at yourself and then. Know, share it with others and let them laugh um, in honour too. I think, like you said, it is a really beautiful thing.
2: And like you said, to, to own it rather than have it own you, that's, uh, yeah, couldn't have put it better myself. That's a fantastic way to put it. Uh, and it is important to, to take some of our regrets and stuff and own them as well because they're all part of learning. And I think as we've both probably agreed, there's no one in, no one out there that's probably grown up Uh, everyone's still in that process. So every day is a learning process, isn't it? And uh, so every day we learn, every day we make mistakes, and every day we form new memories. And I don't think there's any adults in the room. (laughs) We just pretend there are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
3: But what about,
2: so for all of our listeners out there that would love to sit down and share all these experiences and reflections with you, where can they find your debut book, Walk Like a Maniac, this story of everyone who became a man in the 21st century?
3: So the best place to find it would be on Amazon. I know um, that's certainly where I get most of my books from. I think that's kind of the way of the world now, just online generally. But Amazon's probably the best place. Um, like I said, it did get to number one on uh, their adult humour bestsellers list. So hit up Amazon and get me back to number one.
2: Absolutely, and uh, you know what an honor it is to have the opportunity to talk with. I can officially say now, a best-selling author.
3: The pleasure was mine,
2: yeah. So, no, the, thank you so much, uh, Jake, for, for being a part of the Australian Book Office podcast, and thank you so much for telling us about the, the journey that uh, resulted in the book. And, uh, look, we can only hope there's gonna it's the first of many, and it sounds like it will be the first of many. And, good chance that if the uh, opportunity comes for me to chat again, you won't be able to say you're not a celebrity, you'll probably be a celebrity by that stage. <laughs> so, uh, remember me when, when you're a celebrity from this humble moment where I was uh chatting with you because I I suspect that the sky's the limit for you
3: and uh, I just wish you all the very best. No, thank you. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, take care. Enjoy Melbourne and uh, just be careful when you're doing the worm.
3: I'm trying to remind (laughs) myself of that. Thank you. Yeah, but don't stop it. No. Definitely not. I'll keep doing the worm if you bring back the caterpillar
2: yeah that one could result in some permanent damage
3: yeah <laughs> that's what makes it so special though yeah, yeah true last one well i'll
2: have to i'll have to look for a copy of beatbox i think it was or beat street sorry was uh it? the original uh the, the original movie for all that sort of stuff and i might pick another move and try
3: and incorporate that into my i get my books. hands on that too and see if i can incorporate the caterpillar in there
2: Oh, there'll be plenty of fuel for you there. Absolutely. Perfect, yeah. Perfect. The beatbox go- Oh, it was a beat Street. Sorry. Yeah. Going to be on. 1984, off the top of my head. But nonetheless, so <laughs> okay, from- you do the worm, I do the caterpillar. And uh, all the very best, though, for all you ventures forward. Thank you so much for chatting.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Take care.
1: there you go thanks jake o'donnell for chatting to us about walk like a maniac and lots of firsts and sharing yeah your pivotal moments so yeah yeah it got me thinking about pivotal moments what about you
2: well i definitely brought back memories when we were talking to jake uh, about you know trying to do the <laughs> the break dancing so, <laughs> on the floor uh, that was a definitely a pivotal moment because it was the first time i ever tried the was it the worm or the I can't remember what it was. We jump on the floor, sort of chest. Oh yes,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: You're supposed to do the old, thing. and I all but you know, well sprained, but pretty came close to broken my wrist. So yeah, it was a pivotal moment because that was the first and only time I did break dancing. <laughs> so that was the end of that. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was a, it was a really great opportunity to think back about the, I guess the process of growing up. that you know we all go through, um, and it was just interesting to to consider that we all share so many experiences uh, growing up, uh, whether they're good, bad, embarrassing, fun, you know, mm. horrible. But at the same time, even though they're like a almost a universal experience that we will all you know, experience for want of a better word at some point, but we all experience it in our own very unique way. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, Everyone's first kiss is very unique to them. Everyone's, well, for boys, a lot of times the first fight is, is, you know, everyone's going to have a different fight. Uh, All all those things. And uh, it made me, yeah, made me contemplate a while just how much those first experiences shape the way we view the world. And and even maybe when we, as a rider, you know, when when we're riding, whether those experiences actually, they may not necessarily, like if I'm going to describe a fight, it may not be influenced by my first fight. On a conscious level, because mm. the fight is going to happen in the story, so it's the character. However, some of the—I wonder how much of the emotional or some of it, must trickle back from that first part. So almost like—I I love the idea of first because it, I've got this abstract notion of, you know, for example, Jung's archetypes, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense that they're—I like to think of them like uh, cookie shapes <laughs> <laughs> of everything. Yeah, and okay. Don't you, know you, where you're going yeah so, you with this?
0: Like, yeah, so
2: you've got like, em- yeah, so you got empty cookie shape. <laughs> trays in your head yeah. or in your soul depending on where you are where you think they might sit but I like to think that when you have that first experience that is going to be something that all of us go through so therefore we have that cookie cut cookie cut shape in the head then that puts the dough in there and then how we I guess allow that to shape who we are is the temperature we bake it at so sometimes the cookie's perfect sometimes it's you know comes out all over fluffy and sometimes it's all burnt shriveled but um yeah our experiences i like to think are the cookie dough in <laughs> the cookie shapes in our okay. brain i can see
1: where you're going with that yeah yeah,
2: yeah so but it, it it's a uh it was a fun thing to look back and think about all the the first um what about yourself Like again like when it comes to first experiences how much do you think the first experiences shaped who you are now or at least who who you've become and uh, do you think it has an influence on you know your archetypes for want of a better word when it comes to writing?
1: Oh absolutely I don't think you can really say that your firsts haven't influenced mind you it's a long time ago that some of those school and firsts happen but there are still firsts and I think that's something that I do love is Doing new things, I still like to mm. chase shiny new learning and and uh, have new experiences all the time. And you
2: can't stop baking. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: there's
2: so but, many cookies to be yeah, made.
1: And I think it would be sort of disingenuous of authors to suggest that there's not some of them in everything that they write, even you know, even if it's fiction, so that their characters. Yes, some of them you can see are loosely based on the author themselves, but I think that decisions about the first thing and the way you respond to it very much shapes how you write, who you are, therefore, and how you write. So, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, look, some of the first in terms of what you experience at school, whether you're bullied, whether you're um, supported uh, in your learning. What you uh, get from learning itself, and and how teachers mm. there and those kind of things. Yeah, I actually I think I'm trying to remember as you were talking back to my first kiss, and it was it was a long time ago, but it was um I not I actually don't even think it was particularly a boy that I fancied, but uh, we went out to ice skating, of course, which is in the olden days was at Saint Moritz in Saint Kilda, not there any longer got a bus it was kind of a uh, uh, to the train station I lived uh, quite a distance from high school and so I was staying with a friend and she said oh this boy likes you you know he wants there and before you knew it I'm sitting next to him on the bus and the whole thing happens and it's just all a bit weird but there you go that was a long long time ago
2: and then you get that little piece of paper that says, "Will you go round yeah. with
1: me?" <laughs> and are you going together? Yeah, probably until the next Saturday when you went somewhere else and somebody else likes you. You know,
2: <laughs> that's right. Yes,
0: <sighs> yeah.
2: But I like the idea of also, you know, the, the first time mistakes uh, that have, you know, pivotal repercussions I suppose mm. um, you know fun ones you know the first time you you do something ridiculous to maybe impress a girl from speaking from, a, well, <laughs> from my perspective uh, you that that's something that uh, you know often you won't forget those in a hurry um, you know so all those little mistakes that uh, are part of the learning process of being you know in society and, and interactions with other people but also you know when it comes to mistakes that maybe are are, are more important that you recognize. For example, I think about the first time that I got lost, Mm -hmm. you know, riding my BMX, uh, you know, and that taught me, I remember the fear and, you know, I was only a little tack up. So, you know, didn't know anything about beyond the main couple of big main roads. So when I got lost from being an idiot and uh, exploring and it was getting dark, I remember, I'll never forget that. And that sort of, you know, taught me big lessons the first time for example uh, caught in a rip or caught in a dangerous situation mm. in the ocean when I was a kid. Uh, I, you know that's that's a memory I can you know that I've held on to but that's and then for me personally I can only speak for me when it comes to first and, and uh, for example uh, first mistakes, I still think of it as in the as in the cookie so that first experience of possibly you know possibly dying really if you're caught in a rip in a dangerous ocean, um, and you're suddenly getting swept that could be that can end bad so it is a, it is quite an overwhelming situation. If that's the first time and that's how the cookie goes in and it bakes a little bit funny um, then that's I think the important thing to learn is t- don't be scared to taste the cookie mm-hmm. take a bite and then ah oh, it actually tastes quite nice and then you can sort of you know overcome those fears for the next time mm. uh, because up, there's obviously a lot of uh, first that may, be prevent us from moving forward in different areas too. So yes, the first time of anything is, is so powerful and it, can, it yeah. can have so many repercussions. It can also be an eternal source of smiles and laughter and um, cringe at three in the morning yeah, when well, I think back a of some of things I've done. It, it, yeah. What
1: you uh, mentioned about some of the, um, your first there, I remember the first shift that I went on to the hospital ward, so... You know, you know, I've been a nurse for many years and this was, you know, in the late 70s so we'd done our training in the nursing school and there we were bright and shiny with our white aprons and caps and black shoes and stockings and all those kind of things and rocking up to the ward for the first time and actually, you know, meeting the first people in hospital beds and having this woman say to me... Tell them not to resuscitate me again. She was so angry. She had chronic obstructive airways disease and she'd had a respiratory arrest and the hospital had resuscitated her and she was just so angry because her life was, in her words, she was miserable and it was not any kind of life. She needed oxygen all the time. She could barely move. Um, She was in a a lot of distress and it just, Hmm. as a first introduction. She was the first um, patient that the the senior nurse, the second you took me to meet. And it was just, holy shit, this is life and death. This and is life. This is real. This yeah. is not like it was in the, in the stories or in the, the lectures that we'd had. Uh, it was pretty confronting. And I think that really shaped that the way that I nursed uh, and got me to challenge some of the... Uh, Western medicine and some of the protocols and some of the rules that you know and the the sort of patronising and infantilising of uh, older people and all those kind of things and just thought right there are really people in these beds. It's not mm. academic.
2: Yes, it's a lot of learning to be uh, obtained from being in hospital yes. as a patient and I'm no doubt as a, a nurse or doctor too. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, that was yeah. that was amazing. But of course, there are the good things. As you say, I remember the birth of my first child. That was just amazing. Uh, and some of you have heard me talk about Cassie she's an illustrator and digital artist as well as a, a learning facilitator for a, a law firm. But just having that birth having been a midwife myself and then it's very different on the other end (laughs) when you are you know in that really primal experience and it was yeah it was amazing and really pivotal and we talk about sort of pivotal moments and some of them can be those really big ones like you know birth and divorce and marriage and all those kind of things but i was really interested i was doing a little bit of uh, research about things that sometimes the pivotal moments are more unique more individual such as i mentioned about meeting that first woman uh you know in my on my first day on the wards and mm. you know we can be so busy with the day-to-day demands and sort of that that doing mode that even when a pivotal moment comes, you might not notice it. So I was reading this um, little article from a gentleman called Harsha Pereira. He's an executive coach in London, so executivecoachinglondon.com. And, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, whether it's sort of being underappreciated by a friend, a boss or a romantic partner or whether it's feeling an incongruence between your values and your work. You've got to first notice what is happening in order to make something of it. And he talks then on about, um, you know, seizing those pivotal moments in life. And then there's kind of this before and after, you know, you remember before and after you did something or that something happened to you. So, yeah, pivotal moments. And as you've mentioned, uh, Jake has shared a whole lot of pivotal moments in Mm. his book.
2: Well, I'll, I'll share a pivotal okay. moment, which um, shows that it doesn't ha- always have to be happening when you're no. young. No, so it, is, it was a first, and it was a pivotal moment. So, I guess talking about uh, you know the book being growing up like a man, and in brackets, I act, so a maniac. As a uh, young, well, younger man, I suppose it wasn't too long ago. Um, I was uh, working on as. I did a bit of, a little bit of work as a boom operator sound for a television show mm-hmm. uh, f- filmed out in the hinterlands there in Queensland. And we had an episode, it was a TV show at the time was called Beastmaster, an American show based on the very, very corny but cool 80s movie. Uh, but there was a, a day we were shooting where one of the scenes is with um, the Beastmaster being woken by Tiger, mm-hmm. who's actually his friend. And so when we rocked up to set, which was uh, you know out in the sort of rainforest area there, and they were setting up this big, big cage, and uh, I said, "Oh, is that, is that for the the tiger?" Because I knew we were getting a tiger, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the guys, sort of one, of the, I guess, it was assistant director or whatever, said, "Oh, no, no, that's for the crew," <laughs> and I thought he, I, I thought he was joking, ah. but he wasn't. So everyone we all had to stand in this cage, and then they set up the camera and then the two tiger handlers came out and uh, had rifles and they said okay everyone do not move everyone quiet tiger coming on set so off come out comes this big tiger on this huge chain but it's a really long chain and then let the tiger sniff let it settle down and from you know standing in the cage suddenly i was like oh this is bizarre (laughs) (laughs)
0: like
2: now i'm the zoo animal but uh then they had one one operator on a camera, and then they wanted sound. So my boss at the time said, are you scared of cats? And I was like, no, not at all. This is an idiot guy being bravado <laughs> at stupid times. So, no, 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 I love cats, yeah. <laughs> so, which I do. And he's like, okay, well, here you go. So then I, they got me out of the cage, and I got got given a whole heap of instructions from the, the handler, what to do, what not to do, what to do if anything happens. And uh, they had, I assume, tranquilizer guns and possibly bullets you know whatever they need so that was the ca- that was the situation so i had to stand behind the uh, the camera operator and hold the boom out so we could pick up the sound of the tiger mm. going to this who was a stunt actor at, at that point now as i was standing there the trainer walked the tiger past me and it was at that point that i realized i I'd made a mistake <laughs> there was about two meters slack of chain, and I was about no, probably three meters of slack chain, and and the tiger was like literally one meter away from me. So it it could have just jumped and pounced. And it was the first time ever that I realised I was just a snack, and that felt really weird. I was a snack for another animal. And the embarrassing part was my leg wouldn't stop shaking. (laughs) There was nothing I could do to stop my leg shaking. It was absolutely a pivotal moment when I just realised. I mean, yeah, it's not an animal I'm going to come in contact with in the wild here in Australia, yeah. but it was I guess it was that first time when I realised that we could easily be eaten. You know, we are just a source of protein for another animal. And, you know, talk about respect for nature. It went up... On the richter scale that day (laughs) and uh i'm I'm sure there was a bit of laughter too at my shaking leg and uh but yeah so there you go you get yourself into the strangest uh situation sometimes while with a little bit of false bravado and (laughs) uh yeah so that was a pivotal moment my my respect for animals and nature is takes on a whole new new meaning now my understanding of the food chain Is definitely a little bit sharper. Yeah. And, uh, of course, for me, it was both exciting, pivotal and embarrassing all in one. So there, there you go. go. Thank you for sharing so, yeah. that. Oh, there's plenty more. But, but that's for our R-rated <laughs> but, and, episode. And, you know, we do
1: have to keep the uh, episode rolling along. And so I <laughs> think we might be up to quotes.
2: Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, what inspired your quotes today? Well,
1: the word pivotal and experiences. And wow. I think, right, yeah, that that's kind of, yeah, very much... Uh, what I love and you know when I'm doing my coaching always getting people to think about those pivotal moments in your life or your day and yeah so this is a quote from uh, author Elizabeth Norris so uh, Elizabeth is a I think she's yeah she's American author Um, now lives are made of strings of moments and every once in a while one of those moments is pivotal and defining it changes everything alters you so completely that when you look back there's a clear before and after
2: mm, i like that visualization yeah. little knots along the way that represent uh pivotal moments Yeah, little
1: and so you can say there's a before the tiger life and there's an after the tiger life. oh yes yeah, yeah. yes and i often say to my kids you know bc before children after children it certainly changes you
0: yeah, yeah.
2: And, of course, there is the, uh, the string theory to the universe itself. So yes, I, I we, love should, it. we
1: should get some of our sci-fi authors on to talk about string theory. But anyway, there you go. And Tell simulation me theory, yeah. Your uh, one of your quotes.
2: Well, I looked into a couple of quotes to, to basically around the idea of growing mm-hmm. up uh, in, this, in this life. And so I've got two. One's a little bit somber. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with that one because I want to finish on a little bit of a fun. Mm-hmm. So the first quote reads as follows. We are all alone. Born alone, die alone, and, in spite of true romance magazines, we shall all someday look back on our lives and see that, in spite of our company, we were alone the whole way. There you go. I do not not say lonely, at least not all the time, but essentially, and finally, alone. This is what makes your self-respect so important, and I don't see how you can respect yourself if you must look in the hearts and minds of others for your happiness. course the author there is none other than Hunter S Thompson Mm. so and that's from the proud hallway saga of a desperate southern gentleman Right. Um, yes a little bit sombre a little bit uh, existential but uh, I'm not sure I agree with it 100% but it is definitely something that makes you think
1: well that's it even if you uh, think about the aloneness some of the best moments in your life are still your interactions with others and your interactions with the world
2: yes and the idea that um you can you know in that with the quote saying that self-respects are so important and you can't respect yourself if you look into the hearts and minds of mm. others for your happiness but i'm not sure I, it's an interesting quote i'm not sure if i agree with it because in my alone time the person who is in that alone time has been shaped and molded by the people around me mm. and the experiences and the and the emotions that I've shared so you know, when you're alone, you're never truly alone because you have always carrying with you. Yeah, as you, know, you mentioned earlier, you know, brought
1: your your history with you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but okay. yeah, interesting. You're obviously, a, a prolific and uh, controversial author, Mr. Hunter S. Thompson, yeah. but always has something to
1: say that makes you think. So, yes, there, you, there go. you go. All right, so I'm going to give you one from a slightly different author this time. Not that all my quotes have to be authors, but. This is by uh, author Robert D. Kaplan, and when I looked him up, he's in fact an American author who writes about politics, foreign affairs, and travel. He's from and his school is the neorealism school, just in case you're interested while we're talking mm. about more existential things, His quote is, "You don't grow up gradually. You grow up in short bursts at pivotal moments. By suddenly realising how ignorant and immature you are.
0: Hmm.
2: That's a curious yeah. one. <laughs> I
1: thought, okay. That's a way I, to the look second at it.
2: Part I, yeah, the second part I agree. I'm constantly uh, aware of my ignorance <laughs> <laughs> and stupidity. That's 100%. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, growing and because, in short
1: bursts at pivotal moments. Mm.
2: But I think I, I, I do get that. I think that's uh, pretty close to the truth yeah. too. And if you're prepared to jump in. moments can come in. thick and fast. Sorry? The moments can come can come thick, thick and fast, fast yeah. and, and so they can you know, and be pivotal and uh, you know, like you said, from the moment from the second that that a pivotal moment is over, you're a different person. Yeah. Or at least you you know, in theory you've gained wisdom, you've gained experience. Yeah. If you're prepared to look uh, at it, you know, you can let
1: it go and then mm, it happen yeah. over and over again, like the universe going, you know, let me just bash you on the head one more time with the idea that you need to do something or get out of mm-hmm. where you are or yeah, mm-hmm. find your way. So there you go. Yeah. Give us yours.
2: Okay, so this quote is from an uh, author called Cassandra Clare, and it comes mm. from a book called City of Ashes. Oh yeah,
1: Mortal Instruments. Yeah, so, yeah. read that one. Mm.
2: So I don't want to be a man," said Jace. "I want to be an angst-ridden teenager who can't confront his <laughs> own inner demons and takes it out verbally on other people instead." <laughs> well said, Luke. You're doing a fantastic job. There uh, you there go. We go. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Cassandra Clare.
1: Ah, uh, yes, very good.
2: Uh, Yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't want to be a man. No, adulting
1: is really hard. Can I just say that? You know, just some days it's easier than others, but at the moment, adulting adulting is very hard.
2: Yeah, but that's that word, isn't it? Adult Mm. um, or man? Uh, It's it's a it's a definition that no one that can't be written Mm. because there is no. Defining um, <laughs> description, because I don't wake up. I've ne- at no point have I woken up and felt like a, an adult. I've sometimes felt the weight of you know the world, yeah. and you know, and possibly had to you know face many of things like yourself. But still, it doesn't make me feel like an adult. It makes me maybe feel closer to the universe, uh, you, know, with, with, you know, with the wisdom that's been given. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, I mean, I can't pretend to be an adult. And I definitely, as a man, oh, I suppose I could be macho. But then if anyone saw me uh, this morning walking Bobby on his harness <laughs> at the park. Bobby the cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Suddenly that notion uh, of a macho man goes out the window. Yeah. But uh, yes, yeah, so there we go. What were you thinking of? Oh, I've got a thought for the tagline, but did you have a thought? No,
1: you are the expert at the taglines. I am the expert at reminding people that if you are a reader and you'd like to receive our semi-regular newsletter full of excellent Aussie-authored books and always a giveaway, then jump onto the website, AustralianBookLovers.com forward slash booklovers and subscribe. Now, we are not going to spam you because... um, As you may know, we're pretty much volunteer at the moment. So uh, when I can get around to it, I certainly, and when I get a free book to give away, we will send you a newsletter. And for authors, as Darren mentioned earlier, jump onto the Book Lovers website forward slash for authors and load up your book so that we can share it with our listeners and talk about it. Now, if you are listening on the podcast, you obviously know where to find us. We're on all good podcasting platforms. But for social media, we're also on Twitter, at Australian Books. We're on Facebook and Instagram, at Australian Book Lovers. And we're also on places like LinkedIn and YouTube. So there you go. Tagline, and just, hit me with your idea. Whoa, we've,
2: yes, I will hit with the idea because I think it's a fun one. But before that, uh, I just wanted to let our listeners know that next episode, <laughs> oh, yes. we have a really cool guest, author Tanya Heeslip, who is uh, the author of An Alice Girl. Beyond Alice and Alice to Prague and uh, fascinating chat she uh, yeah absolutely fascinating from a cattle station to, you know, uh, going overseas and well, obviously to Prague mm. and tr- helping them shape democratic law. Yeah, fantastic. Now, if, that, that, if that's not uh, an interesting just beginning, we we'll are not, not mention everything else. Very fascinating, super fun to chat, uh, just amazing. So, yes, Tanya Heasler, next episode, can't wait. Very good. And, now, of course, we've got
1: a book review after this. So even though we hang up or we give you the tagline, doesn't mean that the episode is over.
2: No, there's always a little (laughs) bit of a bonus magic at the end. Yeah. But when it comes to the tagline, uh, uh, with respect to Jake O'Donnell's book Mm -hmm. and and those experiences he had, backpacking and and whatnot, I thought, hmm, what about if we're like backpackers at a rave, like at a doof-doof, and uh, (laughs) calling out to the DJ, you know, like, yeah, read. (laughs) And... Uh, listeners I was a heavy metal guy so you never would have seen me with glow-in-the-dark Cl- sticks doof talking at any point <laughs> well so I was I'm born only up in era of disco
1: so you definitely wouldn't have seen me there
2: well, <laughs> well disco is still the same calling out to the DJ only you know <laughs> probably different drugs back then that's all <laughs> and, <laughs> and bush music clothes. I did
1: like bush music actually it's like, mm, oh okay
2: I'll imagine well, that I'd, I'd, Okay, well, imagine bush music but with pulsing lights <laughs> and glow-in-the-dark sticks and why are people in pyjamas in a nightclub, that sort of uh-huh. stuff. Okay, <laughs> so, with
1: you.
2: Okay. All right, so did you want to lead me uh, in?
1: Yes, are you ready? So, I readers am. and listeners, take care for now and remember to... Three. Oh, no.
0: More. More. Pussy. Pussy. Pussy.
2: So you can't see it, but I'm like, you know, I'm grooving in the chair. (laughs) Nah, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for episode 53. Can't wait to uh, share with you episode 54. And, uh, yeah, thank you for supporting the podcast. Hope you enjoy looking through all the wonderful Australian authored books on the website. There's so many there. It's growing every day. Uh, Let's bring it to the world. In the meantime, take care.
1: Take care and bye for now. One Summer in Santorini, Holiday Romance Book One by Sandy Barker is a light and sunny read on the surface. Romance, travel and food in equal parts. But there's more to One Summer in Santorini than that. Barker has a sharp and excellent eye for characters and description. She throws us into the deep end and into close quarters with an eclectic group of travellers sailing the Greek Isles. There's tension, undercurrents, bad behaviour and lots of flirting. Our main protagonist, Sarah, keeps us informed with her internal chatter that feels very real and refreshingly Australian. And while she starts out on a holiday to forget her nasty ex, Sarah discovers a great deal more about herself as she unwinds and gets up close and personal with her sailing family. Tears, tantrums, laughter and love. A great combination. Let's meet again. magic happens. Australian Book Lovers acknowledges First Nations peoples and recognises their continuous connection to country, community and to culture. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and honour the sharing of traditional stories passed down through generations. We're committed to a safe and inclusive welcome for authors and readers of all cultures and backgrounds, including people of LGBTQIA communities and their families.